It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Seven days of ceasefire between Israel and Gaza came to a shattering end on Friday. As the deadline for the latest pause in fighting ended, hopes for an extension came crashing down. Hamas fired rockets into Israel, and Israel bombed Gaza. During the pause, 110 Israeli hostages were exchanged for 240 Palestinian prisoners. But now, as hostilities resume, and the death toll in Gaza is already spiralling. Where do both sides stand, according to international law? The UN Secretary-General expressed concern about what he called clear violations of international humanitarian law in Gaza. The grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas, and those appalling attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. It's the responsibility of warring parties to make sure they act within the rules of international law. So Israel's military has lawyers on the ground advising them on what's allowed and what's not, just as armies around the world have done for decades. So who are these men and women? How do they weigh the lives of civilians against the gains of war? And what are the consequences when a person or a country breaks the law. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Israel, Gaza and the laws of war. We hear from a war lawyer. I'm Jenny Maddox and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Law at the United States Military Academy, West Point. At times of war, a council of lawyers are on the ground in active operations, advising commanders on what they can and can't do. It's rare to get a glimpse into how this works, but today we're getting an insight from a woman who's been at the heart of some crucial British battles. And we should say she's speaking to us today in a personal capacity. Any views I express here today represent my personal views and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defence, the US Army, the US Military Academy or any other department or agency of the United States government. 
I feel like we've got the small print out of the way. Yes. <laughs> so you, you're teaching law to cadets in, in America at the moment. But before you went to West Point, you actually worked for the British military. How did that happen? For me, it was never a career plan that I had. I joined um, a big city law firm after my undergraduate law degree. But then after working in private practice for about 10 years, I decided that I wanted to move on to something with a more of an international focus. At that time, I had no experience of the military whatsoever. I didn't even know the army had a legal service, but I happened to see an ad one day in a legal magazine. And I thought, well, why not? I'll go ahead and apply. And in order to be a lawyer with the army, I mean, do you actually have to train as a soldier? We do a shortened course at Sandhurst. That's alongside the medics, the dentists, etc. What's that like? I found it hard. I had never touched a weapon. I had no idea really as to what the job involved or what being in the military involved. And because it was very short, it was also very intense. And I found that there was sort of limited time to actually learn all these military skills. So as an army lawyer, are you expected to handle a weapon? Yes, we have to when we're deployed. And tell us a bit about that. I mean, you were deployed. What was your operational experience? So I deployed twice, first to Afghanistan in 2012. And then more recently, I deployed as part of a a US headquarters in Iraq in 2019. Just stepping back, I know you've, um, you've signed the Official Secrets Act, so I appreciate you can't tell us all the specifics, but could you just sort of explain for lawyers who are advising commanders, you know, how does it work in a war zone? So there are not enough lawyers to go around so that every commander has a lawyer by their side. So normally it's the more senior commanders that would have a lawyer within their headquarters. But it's not always the commanders that the lawyer is talking to. So you have lawyers at different levels of command, and obviously you'd need to be speaking to those on a, on a regular basis. Equally, if there are particular issues that I was dealing with, and if there was enough time to actually go back to the UK before they needed an answer, you could reach back to the higher headquarters for advice. Also, the legal advisor will work very closely often with a policy advisor. Lots of these issues, they don't just raise legal issues often there will be policy considerations as well. So, for example, during the counterterrorism fights of the last couple of decades in Iraq and Afghanistan, the proportionality consideration, which under the law of armed conflict, depends on the issue of whether the expected harm to civilians and civilian objects is excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated to be gained. It allows the commander to authorise a strike if they know that civilian casualties will take place. But often as a policy, not a legal decision, it was decided that, well, we're not going to proceed if we're going to cause any civilian casualties. Often there will be considerations with regards to, does it fit with government policy? What will happen if this gets into the media? So we'd work very closely with policy advisors and also just general military staff. And what sort of issues are we talking about? I mean, what sort of areas of law do you end up covering? So in the British Army, all lawyers are expected to be able to advise on any issues that might arise on operations. So that can vary from a disciplinary issue involving a soldier, a more employment-based issue, for example, an inappropriate relationship that two uh, service personnel might be having. It can be to do with, oh, can we share this piece of intelligence or information with a partner? Because obviously, many of the operations we're uh, carrying out are as part of a coalition. And often you just wouldn't have an idea from one day to the next, what might cross your desk? I can imagine. And when you're working with commanders, um, was it just within the British Army that you were having to deal with people? 
I deployed with the Americans as well, so I was advising US generals as well. Generally, I think it's it's probably changed in recent years in that um, in the past, commanders would quite happily take decisions without a lawyer by their side. But I think now, certainly, they really appreciate the advice from a lawyer, not only in relation to specific legalities, but often to just get a different perspective in relation to often quite difficult issues that arise. But it's not the lawyer who decides. The lawyer only advises. It's always the commander who decides. So they can ignore your advice if if you tell them that something isn't right? Yes, of course they can. Now, I think the sensible commander might be thinking carefully before they did that, but they're certainly not bound to follow their lawyer's advice. That's so interesting. And obviously, you're now teaching soldiers how to think about the law around war. Tell us a bit about that and the importance of that. So at the moment, I'm teaching West Point cadets, and it's more on the kind of academic level. But an important role of a military lawyer is to train soldiers, because frequently they'll be operating without a lawyer by their side. They'll need to make split-second decisions on whether or not they can target a particular person or object. And so they need to know the basics of the law of armed conflict. And, you know, in a war situation, you know, firstly, as the lawyer, where are you? And how often are they turning to you and asking your advice? So in terms of location, normally lawyers would be in the rear, so in the headquarters. There's no reason to put us in danger if that can be avoided. So normally we'd be back with the commander, not where the fighting is taking place. And then in terms of how often you're giving advice, it's it's on a daily basis. And you have been a little closer to the front line too. Yes. So when I was deployed with the Americans in Baghdad, we were experiencing quite a lot of uh, rocket attacks from Shia militia groups targeting our military base. So we were getting rocketed quite heavily and eventually had to evacuate down to Kuwait. That must be incredibly tense, particularly if you're being asked to make decisions while, while there's so much going on around you. In a battlefield, when everything's kicking off and decisions are having to be made very quickly, I mean, how long would you have to think things through? It really depends. For example, we're talking about targeting earlier. So there's different types of targeting with pre-planned targeting, which is targets that are planned in advance. You go through a very rigorous process. They're boarded, you're considering collateral damage, different weapon systems, etc. But equally, um, situations also arise where you have no time. So in contrast to this pre-planned targeting I mentioned, we also have dynamic targeting or time-sensitive targeting where a target might arise at short notice and you might have feed from a drone and then the lawyer might be there watching that drone feed with the commander and advising on a real-time basis as to whether or not a potential strike would be lawful. So it really, really does vary. You've talked about working out whether something is lawful. Just sort of stepping back, where do the rules of war actually come from? So the modern laws of war are primarily set out in treaties. And the most important of these treaties are the four Geneva Conventions of 1949. Now, These were obviously agreed after the horrors of the Second World War, and so they serve primarily a protective function. And they set out basic rules to protect people who are no longer participating in hostilities. And then after that, what you have is two additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions that were both agreed in 1977. The additional protocol talks about how you actually go about fighting. And so it's in practice, it's the first additional protocol that's far more relevant as for a military lawyer in terms of day-to-day legal advice. And that first protocol, the one that lawyers use the most on a day-to-day basis, what exactly does it say? It sets out the important conduct of hostilities rules, including the principle of distinction, the duty to distinguish between military and civilian persons and objects, 
the duty of proportionality, which under the law of armed conflict depends on the issue of whether the expected harm to civilians and civilian objects is excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated to be gained, and also the um, obligation to take feasible precautions in attack. So that means that both sides have to show that they've taken feasible precautions in order to limit the harm that they're causing. Going back to the Geneva Conventions, you said earlier that they're there to protect people who aren't fighting. So whether they're soldiers who've been injured or civilians or children who were never really part of the fighting anyway. Just tell us a bit more about those protections. As I mentioned, the four Geneva Conventions of 1949, they're all protective, but they, they focus on different categories of persons. So the first convention protects the wounded and sick on land. The second convention protects the wounded and sick at sea and also the shipwrecked. The third convention sets out quite detailed rules relating to uh, prisoners of war. And then the fourth convention sets out various protections for civilians in times of war, including in situations of occupation. And in terms of the sort of protections that they offer, just talk us through some of them. I mean, what what does it mean for civilians or prisoners of war or or people who are uh, wounded on land or sea? So the basic principle is that once an individual is hors de combat, so they're out of the fight because of wounds or detention, they can no longer be targeted. So they are then protected and they should be uh, cared for by whichever party of the conflict whose hands they they come into. So those are are basic principles. Obviously, this convention is very detailed. So, for example, in situations of occupation, the fourth convention sets out very detailed rules protecting civilians. And... Is everybody signed up to the Geneva Conventions and protocols? So the four Geneva Conventions of 1949, yes, they do apply to every state in the world. They are universally ratified. But the same is not true of the two additional protocols of 1977. Ah. So... Importantly, Israel and the United States are not party to the first additional protocol. But nevertheless, as I mentioned, the most important conduct of hostilities rules within that, most states in the world accept those as customary in nature. So Israel and the US still accept that they're bound by these important principles of distinction, proportionality, etc. Ah, so all the laws of proportionality, although Israel isn't signed up to them, they have agreed that these are standards they would live by. Yes, so it agrees that it is bound as a matter of customary international law, that's correct. Is their attitude to proportionality different to other countries? It seems from the strikes that Israel has carried out that that may be the case. Now, Israel, as I mentioned, is not a party to the first additional protocol to the Geneva Conventions, which sets out the proportionality rule, but it nevertheless accepts that it is bound by that rule as a matter of customary international law. How Israel interprets that rule is obviously for its own commanders to decide. And I think there's quite a clear disparity between the way that Israel is interpreting it in the conflict in Gaza, where perhaps it views its own survival as being at stake in view of the horrific attacks that happened on the 7th of October and Hamas's threat that it will repeat those attacks if given the opportunity. Israel is a country that has no place on our land. We must teach Israel a lesson, and we will do this again and again. The 7th of October attack is just the first, and there will be a second, a third, and a fourth. And I think it is quite a 
clear disparity between the way the proportionality rule was applied in the recent counterterrorism struggles in in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, in those counterterrorism fights, the states involved in the coalitions took the decision to try and minimise civilian casualties. But it's important to remember that that was a policy decision, not necessarily a matter of a decision taken as a matter of law. So states decided that it was it was not beneficial to conduct strikes that would cause large numbers of civilian casualties because of the damage that would cause to the wider campaign. Israel's consideration of proportionality is probably quite different, and it seems that it's balancing the military advantage and the potential collateral harm to civilians in a different way from the way we've seen it in recent decades. That's not to say necessarily that Israel's conduct is a violation of the law of armed conflict, but it may well be that that will be viewed in future by a criminal court. We shall see. Coming up, we put the theory into practice and look at recent events in Israel and Gaza which have raised questions about war crimes. That's in just a moment. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Jenny, anyone who's been following events in Israel and Gaza will be aware of the attacks on the Al-Shifa hospital, which Israel said was a base for Hamas operations. There were reports uh, that the hospital staff was given one hour to evacuate the whole building by the Israeli army. Now, the Israeli army denies that. For now, uh, they are still trying to find evidence of the presence of this Hamas command center they've been saying existed under hospital and that, according to them, justifies this attack. If you are a lawyer advising the Israeli army in a situation like that, what sort of conversations are you likely to be having? Well, clearly hospitals are protected under the law of armed conflict. And so the first issue is whether that hospital has lost its protection from attack because it's being used by Hamas. And that's clearly what uh, Israel is contending at the moment. This, Israel says, is the proof it's been searching for. Releasing video today of what it claims is a Hamas tunnel shaft on the grounds of Al-Shifa, Gaza's largest hospital. If Israel is correct that Hamas is using the hospital as a command centre, then uh, the hospital is no longer protected from attack. And so potentially it can be struck during Israel's military operations. But then that's not the end of the matter, whereas distinction is the first principle to, to think about distinguishing between civilian objects and military objectives. Then the next consideration is the issue of proportionality, which under the law of armed conflict depends on the issue of whether the expected harm to civilians and civilian objects is excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated to be gained. And obviously thinking about this from a commander's perspective, it's a very hard thing to evaluate because on the one hand you have military advantage, which 
can only really be assessed from the Israeli military's perspective, what advantage they expect to gain from a particular strike. And then on the other side of that equation, you've got civilian harm. It's important to remember that that's the civilian harm that's anticipated from the strike. It's not the civilian harm that is actually caused. And so often in militaries, there's quite complex evaluations of the damage that particular weapons you're intending to use will cause so that you can try and assess how many civilians will be harmed and then trying to assess whether that is excessive. And that's a very difficult thing to determine. So it might change the way you attack a hospital in order to try and limit civilian casualties. Looking at the evidence for it being a command centre for Hamas, would you have to have evidence to show it was still being used as a command centre or had been in the past? Obviously, at the time that a commander's planning an attack, often it's not evidence that you have, it's, it's intelligence. And it's one assessment for the commander to have as to whether they think the intelligence or information they have is, is sufficient to reach a decision whether or not they can go ahead with the strike. And there's another obligation I should mention in that commanders, when they're planning strikes, must also assess the feasible precautions that they can take to minimise harm to civilians. So that can include things like the timing of attack. Is there a, a particular time that they can conduct the strike where fewer civilians will be harmed? Uh, can warnings be issued to civilians to tell them that a strike will happen? And obviously, we've seen Israel issuing warnings to civilians to tell them to leave a particular uh, location prior to an attack. We are asking all the civilians in Gaza City to go south of Gaza because we don't want to harm them. The camouflage of the terrorists is the civil population. Therefore, we need to separate them. So those who want to save their life, please go south. And that's, again, a feasible precaution that militaries might take to try and minimise civilian harm. And would you have to think about what's a reasonable amount of time to give warning? Absolutely. All of these considerations would would need to be taken into account. And, And clearly there was a lot of commentary in relation to Israel's initial warning to civilians to move south and whether that was sufficient in the circumstances. Israel has ordered more than a million people in northern Gaza to evacuate the region in less than 24 hours. The United Nations says that is impossible without devastating humanitarian consequences. A warning must be effective, so giving a very brief period of time that doesn't allow civilians to actually move would not comply with that obligation. And also it's important to mention that it's it's feasible precautions that militaries must take if they determine that a particular step is not feasible. For example, sending the warning would uh, tell the enemy that they're going to strike and that would mean that the attack would no longer achieve its advantage because, for example, the enemy might move. Then that, again, is something that the military can take into account. At the moment, in Gaza, we don't know what sort of advice the Israeli lawyers are providing. But, you know, we've heard examples of, obviously, as we talked about, the, like the Al-Shifa hospital, but also the International Red Cross and the UN have taken casualties, medics and aid workers, journalists. The United Nations is mourning the more than 100 aid workers who've been killed in Gaza since the start of the war. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, the war on Gaza has quickly become the deadliest conflict for journalists since the 1990s. The CPJ reports that nearly 40 have now lost their lives at the hands of the Israeli forces since the war began. For lawyers on the spot, how how risky is all of that? The first point I'd make is I'm sure that Israel would say they're not targeting aid workers and medics, they're targeting Hamas, and that any harm to innocent civilians is incidental to the attack on Hamas. 
we want to differentiate between our enemy, which is these Hamas extremists, and between Gaza's civilian population who are not the targets of our offensive. We are committed to minimizing as much as possible civilian losses. We don't want to see them. And obviously, incidental harm, as I discussed when I talked about proportionality, incidental harm to civilians and civilian objects is not necessarily unlawful, as long as that harm is not excessive in relation to the anticipated military advantage. But there has been a lot of commentary suggesting that Israel has conducted disproportionate attacks. What Israel is doing at the moment by imposing a complete siege on the Gaza Strip is, in effect, collective punishment of 2.3 million uh, Palestinian civilians. The number of civilian casualties, including whole families, are far in excess of any purported military objective uh, that the Israelis claim to be seeking. But to assess that, it, it's quite difficult because you would need to know what considerations the commander had before they made the, the decision to strike. You'd need to know, for example, what information they had available, what they assessed the uh, military advantage to be. But nevertheless, it, it is possible that they have made decisions that violate the law of armed conflict. And if they did, the primary responsibility for dealing with any such breaches lies with Israel itself. States have the primary responsibility to uh, bring criminal cases against individuals within their jurisdiction. And so you'd be looking to Israel to actually court-martial any individuals that might have acted in violation of the law of armed conflict. But whether or not that would happen is obviously questionable. If they did not, then the International Criminal Court does actually have jurisdiction over the situation in Palestine. It has done since Palestine joined the Rome Statute for the um, International Criminal Court in 2015. And the prosecutor of the criminal court, uh, Karim Khan, has confirmed that the ICC is investigating both um, Hamas's actions on October the 7th and since, and also Israel's actions within Palestine, which would include clearly the Gaza Strip. They have uh, active investigations ongoing. This is to be a moment in which the international architecture built on the rubble of the Second World War to create institutions that would ensure never again would we see abominations those promises need to be fulfilled. That's interesting because Israel itself hasn't signed up to the Rome Treaty. It hasn't signed up to the International Criminal Court. Are they still governed by its rules? You're correct. So Israel has not signed the Rome Statute. But the fact that Palestine has means that the um, ICC has jurisdiction over any crimes that are either perpetrated by Palestinian nationals or that occur in Palestinian territory. With regard to the former, the fact that the ICC has jurisdiction over Palestinian nationals means that the ICC can potentially investigate crimes committed by Hamas in Israeli territory because they are Palestinian nationals. With regard to Israel's actions in Gaza thereafter, because that's Palestinian territory, again, the ICC has jurisdiction. So even though they haven't signed up themselves Israel would still come under the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. How exactly does that work? If the court decided that war crimes have been committed, as some are currently suggesting they might have been, how do they go about holding the Israeli government or particular commanders to account? 
So in a similar way to, uh, as we've seen, an arrest warrant being issued against President Putin in Russia, Russia, again, is not a party to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. We could see in future the Office of the Prosecutor issue arrest warrants against um, Israeli nationals. And then whether or not they appear before the court would depend upon whether the, the court ever gains jurisdiction over them. And talk us through Hamas's violations and what they are likely to be held accountable for. So on October the 7th, they clearly targeted civilians. A blatant example of that was at the, the music festival. They also took many civilians hostage. Hostage taking is a grave breach of the Geneva Conventions. Another violation of the law of armed conflict is to intermingle military facilities such as command centres, ammunition stores, etc. amongst the civilian population. So there's quite clear violations of the law of armed conflict on Hamas's part. As I mentioned, the International Criminal Court does have jurisdiction over the situation in Gaza. So it seems likely that we'll see Hamas fighters in front of the International Criminal Court. But we could potentially see Israeli military uh, officers and soldiers as well. And do people face consequences for actions carried out in a war? Is it becoming rarer for people to actually be held to account for the laws around war? I don't know whether it's becoming rarer. I think we can see that in certain conflicts there has been a greater accountability than in others. So a clear example is the conflict in, in Yugoslavia. There the there was a tribunal set up and a number of individuals were tried and held to account through that tribunal. In many other conflicts, there have not been similar accountability mechanisms. That's part of the reason why the International Criminal Court was set up to have a more of a universal jurisdiction. But clearly, its impact in holding people to account is uneven because not all countries in the world are parties to the Rome Statute to the International Criminal Court. So I can't say that it's it's worse than it was in the past. It seems that, you know, in, in certain conflicts, there's a drive for accountability and that is more successful than in others. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Dr. Jennifer Maddox, Assistant Professor of Law at the United States Military Academy, West Point. The producer today was Olivia Case. The executive producers are Kate Ford and Fiona Leach, and sound design was by Hannah Farrell. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.